0: Father, we thank you that you have revealed your greatness to us through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created. Lord, we just stand today in awe of your greatness and of your majesty, and would you graciously confront us today, Lord with this vision of who you are, with a vision of your power, with a vision of your strength, Lord, but also a vision of your grace and of your mercy and your compassionate disposition toward your people. So, Fathers, we open up your word today. We ask that you would show us your son, Jesus Christ. Father, that you would speak to us words that will edify your church as we gather together here today we'll bring glory and honor to your name. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Will you speak it to our hearts now? We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me once again in your Bible to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. If you weren't here with us last week, um, we kicked off a summer study of Paul's letter to the church at Colossi. Lord willing, this is where we're going to be for the next um, couple of months. And so we uh, picked up last week, Colossians 1, 1 through 14. This morning, we're picking up right where we left off in verse 15. So Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23 is what we're going to look at together this morning. And again, just in case you've missed this over the last couple of weeks as we continue to get acclimated to a new space, if you don't have a Bible I'm with you, there are Bibles available in the rack in the seat in front of you. And please listen, if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can keep that one. That's our gift to you. You take that with you as you go today and pray that that can be an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord and as you gather together um, with us for worship each week. So Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Um, Group participation to start things off here together this morning. By show of hands, who knows who I'm talking about if I say the name Cristiano Ronaldo. If you know who Cristiano Ronaldo is, lift your hand. Very good. Many hands all across the room. Um, If you don't know, Cristiano Ronaldo is a Portuguese. Professional soccer player. He is one of the most popular athletes on the planet, and he's widely considered to be one of the greatest soccer players of all time. And pretty much by every measurable objective, he's one of the most um, just recognizable faces on the planet. And in case you've never seen Ronaldo, um, he's like the prototype person. I mean, he's just got that perfect jawline. He's got great hair. He's pretty well built as, as an athlete. And like, you're just going to create a person it would probably look like Cristiano Ronaldo. So a few years back, there was a sculptor who was recruited to craft a bronze bust of Ronaldo. So it was going to be like shoulder to head, and it was going to go in the Madeira airport in Portugal, and so he takes this task on, uh, but to, pu- to put things lightly, the finished product did not nearly meet expectations. Who's actually seen the picture of, of this? I'm just curious. So a few across the room know where I'm going with this. The first attempt was so horrific um, that the bronze bust of Ronaldo was being compared to like Chucky from Child's Play and Jason from Halloween. I, I mean, it was Freddy Krueger. It was- was awful, it, it was awful, I mean it was just a universally panned just turned into a really popular meme on the internet now, in the sculptor 's defense, he did get a second attempt at this, and the second attempt turned out way better than the first attempt. Thank God, right I mean because the first one was was awful, awful, awful. so his first attempt to capture the image of one of the most recognizable figures on the planet was a colossal failure, and that sculpture is just continues to be a running joke that he 'll probably never. Lived down. Now, last week we began studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and this letter focuses heavily on the person and work in, of Jesus Christ. We saw last week that Colossians is rich, in, is rich in Christology, the study of Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus. And the passage we're going to look at this morning... Many scholars believe that uh, these words may be served as the foundation of an early form of Christian poetry, or maybe even the lyrics from a first-century Christian hymn. The verses are rich in Christology, and they emphasize the power of Christ, both his work in creation and in salvation. And as Dave read this earlier, you could hear this. There's a bit of a poetic flow to the verses, and in this passage of Scripture, we find one of the richest expressions of who Jesus is in all of the Bible, where Paul tells us that. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. When you look at the original bronze bust that was formed by Ronaldo's sculptor, you see an image that looks absolutely nothing like the original. But this is not the case with Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and Scripture tells us he is the exact representation of who God is. And That's what we're going to see in this passage together this morning. The character and the nature of the invisible God have been made visible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has revealed through his person and work who God is. So church, understand this morning, Jesus is not a replication of the glory of God. Jesus is a revelation of the glory of God. He is the revelation of the glory of God. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, you only need to look at Jesus because he's perfectly revealed to us who God is. So Colossians chapter one, I'm gonna read beginning with verses 15 through 17. Paul writes of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things. Everybody say all things. See that language a lot in these verses. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Everybody say all things. And in him, go ahead and say it with me. All things hold together. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. Jesus is not a replication of God's glory. Jesus is the revelation of God's glory. And what Paul shows us first in this passage is that Jesus reveals who God is through his power as the Lord of all creation. He reveals who God is through his power as the Lord of all creation. Now there's a strong connection between the way Paul describes Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 and the way that John describes Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John describes Jesus as the capital W word. He is the Logos. And and what that word encapsulated was that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of divine power, divine wisdom, divine knowledge, divine understanding, all of that was encapsulated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Jesus came to make visible what was otherwise invisible. So John writes in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Church, understand Jesus Christ came to this earth so you and I could know what God is like. He has made visible what would otherwise be invisible. He's the image of the invisible God. The Greek term here for image is the same term that you and I would use uh, to get the word icon. But Jesus is not iconic in the sense that he has come as, as some sort of cheap knockoff or a replica. Um, several weeks ago, We got friends that were telling Emily and I about this new app that they had found. It's become pretty popular. I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Uh, There's this new app that was released, and it really advertises, like, name brands, big brands, at just these ridiculously cheap discount prices. And I'm typically not one to jump on board with this, but I opened up my email uh, uh, about a week and a half ago, and uh, I got a free $15 credit. It was like, hey, download the app, and we'll give you $15 of credit to use any way you want. I'm like, sweet. So no risk to me whatsoever. I download the app, and as I download the app, the first thing I see is a Carhartt hat. Now, I'm a Carhartt fan. I feel like I need to call a timeout. I recognize that in recent history, Carhartt has been commandeered by the hipsters, right? And, and who kind of wear it ironically. I grew up in Boone, North Carolina, okay? Literally the boonies. And we had two categories of clothing. You had Carhartt and church clothes. Depending on the day, those categories might overlap, Amen. And, and so I'm, I'm a Carhartt fan, I see this Carhartt hat, it is $6, so I'm like, let's go. So I order the hat, no risk to me, right? I go tell Emily, I'm like, hey, remember that app that our friends told us about, and I found this Carhartt hat, it was only $6, she's like, oh, oh, babe, you can't trust that thing. She's immediately skeptical, I'm like, you need to have more faith. Like, sh- she's not believing this at all, she's like, babe, like, I'm pretty sure you're not getting Carhartt, you're probably getting heart here, like, you, you need to, you need to have a low expectations here, I'm like, fine. So I remain optimistic we'll keep you posted. Delivery day is sometime this week. But I know that deep down inside, there's a pretty good chance that this is just a cheap knockoff. Church, you never have to worry about this with Jesus. Jesus is not a cheap knockoff of God. Jesus is not, my generation, a bootlegged, lime wire download of God. Jesus is not diet God. Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of the glory of God. We never have to worry with Jesus if we're getting a cheap knockoff of God. He is the authentic revelation and manifestation of God. He's the image of the invisible God. More than that, Paul says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, it's really important that we get this word firstborn right, because unfortunately through the centuries, that word has been horrendously misunderstood at times and and has been developed uh, for a series of heretical false teachings. During the third and fourth centuries, early church history, the teachings of Arius were condemned as heresy because he was denying the eternal divinity of Jesus Christ. More modern manifestations of this come from Jehovah's Witnesses. They, They take that term firstborn to mean that Jesus was the first and greatest created being of the Father. But that's not how Paul is using this term here. And, and you can see elsewhere all throughout Scripture that very often the word firstborn is in reference to not someone who is physically born first, but in reference to the rights and the privileges and entitlements that would go to someone who was a legal heir. A good example of this comes from Psalm eighty-nine, twenty-seven where the psalmist records the Lord saying of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, now the Lord calls David the firstborn in Psalm 89, yet if you go to 1 Samuel 16, you can clearly see that David was not the first that was physically born among his brothers. So that word firstborn, again, it refers not to physical birth, it just reme- it refers to the one who is first in all things. And that's what Paul is expressing here. By calling Christ the firstborn of all creation... Paul is not saying that Christ was the first to be created. He was saying that Christ is first in all of creation. Paul is not saying that Jesus is a product of creation. Paul is saying that Jesus is preeminent in all of creation. He's before all things. And One of the key themes all throughout the book of Colossians is the preeminent of Christ. He's preeminent in all things. He's first in all things. His eternal divinity, we're gonna see in later weeks, was being denied at Colossae. So what Paul does at the beginning of this letter is he immediately lays down a doctrinal statement about Jesus, and he reminds the people at Colossae this is who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. So in no way does Paul see Christ as a created being. And the way that we can most readily see this is by what we see in the very next verse. Let's go back and read verse 16 again. Paul says of Christ, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. So again, Paul does not see Jesus as a product of creation. He is preeminent in creation. Paul shows us here that all things were created by Jesus. All things were created by him. So he is the God of creation. All things were created through him. So he's the gate of creation. Paul shows us that all things were created for Jesus. So he's also the goal of creation. All of creation started with Jesus. All of creation ran through Jesus. And all of creation ultimately is running to Jesus. That's why you can't use Paul's words to say that he's created by God, because Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the God of all creation. He's created, Paul says, things in heaven and on earth. He's created the visible things that you can see. He's created the invisible things that you cannot see. Thrones were created by Jesus. Dominions were created by Jesus. Rulers were created by Jesus. Authorities were created by Jesus. Everything, physical and material, was created by him. It was created through him, and it was created for him. You know, as kids, we all learn to sing that song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. Everybody on the same page with me there? Should we sing it together? He's got the whole, no, we won't do it. He's got the whole world in his hands. But listen, church, I hope you understand. It's so much bigger than this. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it is not just that Jesus is upholding the world. Jesus is upholding the universe, and he doesn't even need his hands to do it. He's doing it simply by the power of his word. Paul answers a critical question for us here at creation. Who was the one that was hanging the stars in the sky? Who was the one that was painting the galaxies against the backdrop of the canvas of the universe? Who was the one that was pulling Everest out of the ground? Who was the one that was carving out the Grand Canyon with his fingers like a child playing in the sand? Paul answers the question for us. He tells us Colossians 1, all of it was Jesus. All of it was Jesus. Abraham Kuyper has famously said that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And church, that includes you, and that includes me. Over all of creation, he declares mine. Paul says in verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. That includes you, and that includes me. And so listen, if you're in a space this morning where like, my life feels like it's a mess, my life feels like it's falling apart, I'm barely struggling to hold things together. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1. The one who is upholding the universe is also upholding you. The one who is holding all things together can keep your life from falling apart. This is why we cannot miss who Jesus is. If he can uphold the universe, he can uphold you. And if he can hold all things together, he can keep you from falling apart. You have been made by him. You have been made through him. You have been made for him. He is the Lord of all creation and you're part of the all that he has created. Verse 18, Paul goes on to say of Jesus also, and he's the head of the church or head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, everybody say everything. That in everything, he might be preeminent. So Jesus reveals who God is through his power as the Lord of creation. Second, Paul shows us Jesus reveals who God is through his position as the head of the church. Now, I I think this particular point is extremely relevant for our congregation, especially in the season that we're in right now. And I believe that this is a point that just continually bears repeating now and probably for the foreseeable future. The church is not a building. I just want you to say it with me a few times together. Let's say it all together. The church is not a building. The church is not a building. One more time, the church is not a building. It's not a building. This passage does not say, He is the head of the building, the church. It says, He is the head of the body, the church. This is who Jesus is. He's the head of the church. He's the leader of the body, Understand that this is, this is just a language that I think we have to be so cautious to guard against. We did not build a church. Over the last seven years, Jesus has been building a church, and then that church in turn built a building. Jesus did not die for a building. He died for a body, and the building certainly did not die for us, so the building's not the head of the church, here, Paul reminds us that the church is a body and that the head of that body is Jesus Christ. So he shows us in verse 18 that Jesus holds the highest position above the gathering. He is the head of the body, the church. As the head of the church, Christ is the leader. Christ is the authority. The whole body is dependent on him for vision and guidance and direction. Jesus is our source of life. Understand, as the head of the church, without Christ, the church isn't like a chicken with its head cut off. The church, apart from Christ, is like fried chicken. Like we're not, we're not moving. We're not still going and kind of doing our. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're completely dead. He is the source of our life. If you cut the head off, then there no longer is a living body. When it comes to to, to governance within the church oftentimes a question that we'll we'll frequently get is, hey, is this church ruled by elders or is this church ruled by the congregation? It's a really common question. It's an important question. What We teach through this in our membership class because what we see in the New Testament is that leadership in the church, it's not with any one person explicitly, there's a plurality of elders who together oversee the church and lead the church. And then we also see congregational involvement. So the elders, even as leaders, don't have the authority to unilaterally change doctrine. We don't have the authority to just kick out whoever we want. Those are things that have to be done with consent of the congregation as a whole. And so there's ways that you can see that the elders do lead and there's ways you can see the congregation makes some decisions together and and the New Testament doesn't at times use this word rule uh, to reference governance within the church whether elders or congregation but church please understand this ultimate authority in the church does not lie with the elders ultimate authority in the church does not lie with the congregation ultimate authority in the church belongs to Jesus Christ it's not our church it's his church The Lord burdened my family and a couple dozen other people several years ago to step out in faith and plant this church. But this is not my church. And this is not your church. This is Christ's church. He is the head of the body. He's the head of the body. He's the authority. He is the governor. We submit to his rule. He's the source of strength and guidance and vision and direction. And as the head of the body, we are called to grow up in maturity to him. I want you to turn with me in your Bible, just what will be for most of you just a few pages back. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read here verses 11 through 16. Because what this passage shows us is how we're supposed to be functioning together as the body for the building up of the church as we grow and we mature into the head who is Jesus. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. It says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the what? who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of that body. So church, understand this. A body can operate without a hand, but a body cannot operate without the head. If Christ is no longer recognized as the ultimate authority over this church or as the ultimate authority over any church, then that church ceases to be the church of Jesus Christ. He holds the highest position above the gathering. And he holds this position, second, because Paul shows us that he holds the highest position above the grave. This is what he goes on to say in verse 18. He is the beginning. Not that he was at the beginning, but he is the beginning. He is the firstborn over the grave. So when Paul said that Christ was first in everything, understand that he really meant everything. Christ is not just first over life. Paul says Christ is also first over death. I'm just. Anybody have that friend who is just like good at everything? Like, you're jealous of them because you've worked really, really hard, and you feel like you've put in the time and the effort, but everything just comes naturally to them. You're just so sick of them because they're so—this is personal for me, by the way. I've got some of those folks in my life. Like, it must feel like—you just got that friend in your life. They're literally good at everything. It feels like they finish in first place, even when they finish in last place. But that's legitimately Jesus. He, he is first in Everything. He's the best in everything. He is before everything. He's not just first in life. He's also first in death. Romans 6, 9, the Apostle Paul says that we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This is good for us. This means that Jesus is not just the creator and the sustainer who rules over life. Christ is the conqueror and the savior who rules over death. When Paul says in verse 18 of Jesus, he is the beginning, this calls our attention all the way back to Genesis chapter one, in the beginning. This is the language that he's using here. And where, what we see Genesis chapter one, at the beginning of known time and space and matter, the picture we see of God in Genesis one is a creator who create ex nihilo, meaning he created out of nothing. Now, th- this is overly reductionistic, so you can bear with me here for just a moment. But this is fundamentally where the theist and the atheist are going to most disagree. It's fundamentally going to come down to this question of, where did all of this come from? And, and so, so for those who believe in God, for the theist who believes that there's a creator, the argument goes that there is someone who created everything out of nothing. And for those who don't believe in God, the burden of proof is on them to show that everything was created by no one. And, and and so that's fundamentally where, where we're gonna disagree because when you go back to the beginning of all things, at some point in time you have to land on an uncaused cause that caused everything else to exist. It all had to start somewhere. And what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter one is that Jesus is the uncaused cause. He doesn't just say that Jesus was at the beginning, that he was present for the beginning. He says Jesus is. The beginning. He is the beginning. Jesus is not just the beginning or the end. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's not just the alpha or the omega. He's the alpha and the omega. And listen, that's what this means for us today. Follow with me here. Because Jesus rules life, which is the beginning, and he rules death, which is the end, Then he is able to take the ultimate end, which is eternal death, and transform it into the ultimate beginning, which is eternal life. Let me say that again. Because Jesus is the beginning and the end, because he rules life, which is the beginning, and because he rules death, which is the end, he has the power to transform the ultimate end, which is eternal death, into the ultimate beginning, which is eternal life. Christ is first in the gathered church, friends, because Christ was first to conquer the grave. He's the head of the body, the church. Verses 19 through 23, Paul goes on to say of Jesus, For in him, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. There's that language again, whether on heaven or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood. Of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became. A minister, So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He has made visible what is otherwise invisible by revealing who God is. And he reveals who God is through his power as the Lord of creation. He does this through his position as the head of the church. Paul shows us third. He does this through the peace that he made at the cross. In the coming weeks, we'll see more in-depth the errors that were being taught at Colossae. I briefly mentioned this last week, but just to to refresh our memories here a little bit. Uh, In Colossae, there was an early form of Gnosticism where there were false teachers that were leading people to believe that there was a level of knowledge and spiritual understanding they needed to attain that went above Jesus. That that was the fundamental problem in Colossae was false teaching it was leading to people to believe that what they had with Jesus wasn't enough. That what they had with the gospel, what they had with the word of God, that it was insufficient, that they needed a deeper level of understanding. They needed a more transcendent spiritual experience than what they could find through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds them here of two fundamental truths. He wants the people in Colossae to remember, no, you have everything that you need in Jesus He he is everything that you need. He shows in verse 19 that the fullness of God is revealed through him. Verse 19, Paul says that in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This word fullness has really strong Old Testament undertones. When you think of filling in the Old Testament, it's the glory of the Lord filling the temple in Isaiah chapter 6 or Ezekiel 44. And in Jesus Christ, everything that God is, everything he is, his wisdom, his power, his might, his grace, his compassion, his justice, his mercy, his love, his wrath, the fullness of God did not just dwell within Christ. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell within Christ. God was not begrudgingly revealing himself to us. God is, is, is not like the friend who's trying to hold a secret, who finally caves because you just won't quit leaving him alone. He's like, fine, I'll tell you if you'll be quiet. That's not who God is. You know, ge- generationally, I think this is a little bit of a, hopefully a positive shift. Um, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, if our family was going on a road trip anywhere, my dad treated the time that that trip was going to take like it was classified information. Like, like he's holding on to, dad, how long, we're, we're going to Atlanta, how long is it going to take? He's like, don't worry about it. And and so naturally as kids, like when you don't know how long, what what's the question that you just ask like over and over and over and over again? Are we there yet? And you know, especially as I got older, I was like, Dad, like that's that's not like a hard number to estimate. You could have given us something, right? Like just just give me a range, you know, four to five hours, something. Like give me something I can hang my hat on here. We just ask over and over and over. Like we had to just constantly pester him. Like how are are we ever going to be there? It's like are we in the car for an hour? Is it a week? Like where are we going, man? But, you know, that, that's been one of the great uh, deals about the advent of, like, GPS technology. Our family traveled to Charlotte for our niece's birthday just a few days ago, and we're in our driveway, and I just set my phone up, so I a monitor traffic, and the boys are like, how long is it going to take? I'm like, well, this says three hours and 42 minutes. They're like, okay, cool, and then they never ask, because then I'm like, you can see it on the screen right here. I am pleased to reveal that information to them. Because, because that way, too, if we get stuck in traffic, they're like, we're tired. I'm like, look, I, I, look at the screen. It's not on me. Like, I have no problem with them seeing these things. Listen, this is who God is. He, he is not begrudgingly revealing himself. He, it, it pleased him to dwell within Christ. It pleased him to make himself known to his people so that we could have a clear understanding of who he is. The fullness of God has been revealed through Christ, and in revealing that fullness, Paul also shows us that fallen sinners can be reconciled to him. He reveals the fullness of God, and in that fullness he reveals that fallen sinful people like you and me can be reconciled to right relationship with him. You know, if you asked me, if I absolutely had to, if you asked me to summarize The gospel message with one single word. There's a lot of different words that I think you can use. But I think personally, the word that I would choose to use is reconciled. Because what's wound up in that word, reconciliation, is both the reality that we have rebelled against God. We have run away from God. We have fractured the relationship with God. But it also speaks to God's work of redemption and drawing us back to himself, of restoring us to right relationship. This is the gospel message. God creates us in his image to be in relationship with him, but instead of cherishing that relationship, we reject God and we turn our backs. Verse 21 reminds us of who we were apart from Jesus. And this is important for us to see because Paul says we were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's who we were apart from Jesus Christ. And I think those of us especially who grow up kind of in the the buckle of the Bible Belt here, Bible Belt South, I, th- I think the subtle deception that some of us fall under is when we think of our personal testimony, we're just like, well, you know, I was born in the church, and parents love Jesus, and I can't remember a time not hearing about Jesus, and I've always been taught the Bible stories, and, and, and so the, the subtle deception that then starts to sink in is we start to think of ourselves as people who only kind of needed to be saved, and then there were other people who really needed to be saved, and listen, Paul says, you're wrong, Paul says, we're wrong. We were alienated. We were hostile in mind. I mean, it is that subtle deception. If we really start to think, well, you know, I was actually a pretty good person and, and, and Jesus was just kind of the icing on the cake. You, you will be the most ungrateful for what Jesus has accomplished for you. If you don't fully recognize who you were apart from him. John Piper has a really good reflection on this from his book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die where he speaks of this work of reconciliation, how we have to be very, very careful to not undermine what the Lord has done for us. He writes, most people don't feel conscious hostility to God. The hostility is manifest more subtly with a quiet insubordination and indifference. The Bible describes it like this. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. While we were still like that, God put Christ forward to bear our wrath kindling sins and make it possible for him to treat us with mercy alone. God's first act in reconciling us to himself was to remove the obstacle that made him irreconcilable, namely the God belittling guilt of our sin. Guys, it's not us that removed the obstacle between us and God, it was his initiative. It was his grace, it was his mercy in removing what kept us from being able to be reconciled to him. He took care of our sin and he did it by the shedding of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, who had made peace through his blood at the cross. So when we ask this question, what is it that God reveals to us or what is it that Jesus reveals to us about God? It is impossible to have that conversation without speaking to the fact that God is a loving and gracious and merciful father who is patient and gracious and merciful toward hostile, rebellious children. And he has done everything at the greatest possible cost to himself to bring us back into right relationship with him. And verse 21 through 22 gives us this incredible promise. Through the work of reconciliation, Christ then presents us as holy, blameless, and above reproach before the throne. This is what reconciliation means. It means unholy people are now seen as holy. It means that people who were guilty because of sin are now presented before God as blameless. It means people who were credibly accused and and stood under the indictment of our own sinful actions are now above reproach before the throne. So Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, has waged war against your sins so that you could be at peace with God. He's made peace possible. And so if that's true, then then that just absolutely begs a question for all of us together this morning. How can I know that I'm at peace with God? How can I know that the hostility has ceased and that the Lord is in fact working within me? And the answer is found in verse 23. Paul says here, That as the Lord has reconciled us, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, there's a really important question we need to draw from verse 23. What does Paul mean in verse 23 when he says, if indeed you continue in the faith? Because if we're not careful, you know, at first glance here, it, it almost seems like Paul's saying, yes, God has made peace with you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, but now it's just kind of on you to white-knuckle this thing to the finish line. Like, you better just hold on for dear life and hope that you make it to the end. So, so what does Paul really mean by this when he says, if indeed you continue in the faith? Now, a um, little, little uh, uh, seminary lesson here. You know, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, what we call hermeneutics, but Bible interpretation 101 is you don't use the gray passages of Scripture to interpret the clear ones. You take what is explicitly clear and you use that to interpret everything that seems unclear. And, and so when we look at a conversation like this, we ask the question okay, what is made explicitly clear to us in Scripture about salvation? And what is made explicitly clear all through the New Testament, my goodness, Romans chapter 8, John chapter 6, Philippians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, what is made explicitly clear in the New Testament is that God does not save you and then unsave you. But what is made explicitly clear is that if you are truly in Christ, you are forever in Christ, and he's not letting you go because salvation is not contingent on your good works and your ability to hold on to God. It's contingent on his ability to hold on to you, and he never lets you go. And, and so we we rest in the doctrine of eternal security. We proclaim it as good and right and true because of what it says about God. He saves us and He keeps us and He sustains us to the end. And yet we still have these passages of Scripture that say, "If you continue in the faith." So what do we do with this? What do we do with the gray in light of what we see that is clear? This is the simplest way that I know how to say it for us this morning. You will not be saved because you persevere you will persevere because you are saved. It is not your continuing in the faith. It is not your persevering in the faith that's going to earn your salvation in the very end. The foundation of your salvation is not gonna be what you do for God. It's gonna be what God does for you. Jesus promised John six, my sheep hear my voice. They will answer me and I'm not gonna lose a single one. God's grip on you is stronger than your ability to wrestle away from him. And so this is the the, the picture that we see here in Colossians chapter 1. What then do we do with this? What does it mean if we continue in the faith? Here's an example I want to give to help us understand this a little bit more clearly. Uh, I think one of the most powerful uh, moments in all of athletic competition, especially from the 20th century, came from the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona um, through the story of, of Derek Redmond and his father, Jim. I know many of you have probably seen this before. There's a famous video clip that always makes the rounds um, during Father's Day, and I saw it again just a couple of weeks ago. And so if you don't know this story, 1992 Barcelona Games, um, Derek Redmond, he's a British sprinter, and he's in the 400. In less than 20 seconds into the race, his hamstring just naps. And, and, and so he immediately pulls up limp, and he, he starts just dragging along. And it's just, it's this heartbreaking story, right? Like this is the biggest stage, and the rest of the sprinters just leave him in the dust. But because this is the Olympics, because of his dedication, because of the stage, because of his perseverance, Derek begins to hop on one leg the rest of the way around the track. The race is completely over. He's going to finish in dead last. And as he comes around the final turn, when it looks like he's not going to be able to go one more step down the home stretch, out of the side of the screen, you see Derek's father, Jim, has made his way on to the track. And right when it looks like Derek is about to collapse, his father catches him. And, and so he is, Derek is in obvious agonizing pain. He's in tears. He's so, you can just see, just so broken over what it is that's happened. There's track officials that are trying to pull his dad away, and his dad just not like, this is my son, get away from me. And Jim Revin walks his son, Derek, all the way to the finish line. So here's the picture that we get as followers of Jesus Christ. You and I are called to continue in the faith. We are called to persevere. Peter says that we should make every effort to grow in grace. This is what that means for you and I. Within our strength, within our power, we do everything we can to grow in grace. Men, read and study the word of God like your life depended on it. Pray without ceasing. Seek the Lord in fasting. Give sacrificially of your time and of your finances to the point that it hurts for the glory of God evangelize for the glory of God, go to the nations, go to hard places for the sake of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we do these things, we have to be prepared to bear the persecution of the world. We bear hardship and suffering and the reproach of the world. We make every effort, even when it feels like we're holding on by a thread, we keep pressing forward. But even as we make every effort, we're reminded it's not our efforts, but our Father who's going to carry us to the finish line. It's not our goodness that's gonna take us to the end. We won't be saved because we persevered. We'll be saved because our Father pushed us through it all. He's with us every step of the way. And so, so what does that mean in terms of our confidence and assurance? How can I know that I'm at peace with God? This is very simple today. I know that many of you are in this place where you, you hear this, you're like, Taylor, reality is I, I am struggling. Like I'm struggling to believe in God. My faith is holding on by a thread. I'm struggling to believe that God sees me. I'm struggling to believe that God cares for me. I'm struggling to believe that God is there. But friend, there is assurance in the fact that you are struggling. That struggle within you, that is the spirit of God reminding you, no, no, I'm still here. I'm not giving up on you yet. The fact that you are fighting, the fact that you are pressing forward, that is Christ within you driving you to the finish line. That is your father carrying you to the finish line. Listen, I am way more concerned about the person who's struggling with their sin and wrestling with their sin and doing their very, very best to grow closer to Jesus. I'm way less concerned about that person than I am the person who's just kind of giving themselves up. Listen, if someone has just flat out stopped running the race, we have to wonder if they were ever in the race to begin with. And so listen, my my encouragement to you today, man, is keep struggling. Like, keep fighting. Keep pressing on. Keep going. The fact that you are struggling is evidence that the Lord is with you, and he's carrying you to the end. You've not given up. There's still that desire within you to wage war against your sin, And to grow in godliness and righteousness and holiness toward Jesus Christ. But even as we do these things, we recognize that it's not our efforts that will save us in the end. It's not our perseverance. It's not our continuing. It's the fact that the Lord continues with us. And your Father will carry you to the end. So two responses as we wrap things up together this morning. Here's two questions I want to ask. For reflection and response. One of these questions is on a corporate level for us as a whole church, and the other question is for you on more of an individual, personal level. Christ is first in all things, He is preeminent in all things, He is before all things. So, the first question for all of us today is Is Jesus first in our church? If Jesus is the head of the body, the church, do we rightly recognize his position as the authority over this gathering and over this body of believers? Again, this moment in our church, I think the point just bears repeating again and again and again and again. The building is not the church. The building did not die for our sins. The building is not the head of the body. We can be a church without this facility. That's what we just did for seven years. We can be a church without this building, but we can't be a church without Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. So is Jesus first in your worship each week? Is Jesus first in your community group? Is Jesus first in your serving? Is Jesus first in your giving? Is Jesus first in your singing? Is Jesus first in your praying? If he is the first in all of creation, he has to be first in the life of a church. Second question is for all of us more personally this morning. Is Jesus first in our church? Second, is Jesus first in your life? If Jesus really is the Lord of all creation, if Jesus really is the head of the church, if Jesus really is the one who has reconciled us to God by the shedding of his own blood, friends, if Christ is first in all things, then he absolutely has to be first in our lives. Please do not miss this today the preeminent God of glory who is before all things will not be content to play second fiddle to anything in your life. He is first in all things and he calls you to put him first in your life today. Will you bow your heads with me as we close this morning? Father, as we prepare to come to the table today, we come asking you to examine our hearts, to reveal to us any places that you are not first. Show us any place that we have given you the second seat. God, help us to confess our sin. Will you grant us a heart of genuine repentance that we would turn from the idols that we have placed before you, that we would turn from the things that we put above you, And help us to recognize you are the preeminent Lord who is before all things, who is above all things, and who should be first in all things. So Father, may the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, be what is first in our church. And more than that, may the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, be first in our lives. First in our homes, first in our marriages, first in our money, first in our jobs, first in our children first in our community, first in everything that we do. So Father, we lay ourselves before you this morning. We ask to bring us to a posture of dependency that we would recognize the power and the authority of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the compassion that have been shown to us through him. Thank you that he has made it peace by the shedding of his blood at the cross so that we could be reconciled to you. Help us to see that message clearly again as we come to the table today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen, amen.